Hello, and welcome to the Maximum Theater and Performance Podcast. This is David Levy. Can neighbors work across borders for mutual benefit, or is that just a fool's errand? Playwright Bernardo Cubria explores this question in his new play, Neighbors, A Fair Trade Agreement, playing now through October 7th at Intar Theater on 52nd Street. Today, he joins me for a conversation about writing, clowning, and just a little bit of politics, too. Stay tuned. Hey, everyone. This is David Levy, and today I am here with actor, playwright, and friend of the podcast, Bernardo Cubria, who is a, uh, in addition to all those things, he's also a podcaster who you may know from the other Folio Group show, Off and On, um, although he also has two other podcasts, <laughs> What Can I Do and Bad Hombre's Comedy Hour. Oh my god! I just said that like the whitest way you possibly can, <laughs> which is relevant as we get into talking about his new play, Neighbors: A Fair Trade Agreement. Uh, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, man. I'm uh, so glad you're here. I know I do have way too many podcasts. What can I do is done though. That one no longer exists. Okay, just so people don't. But I do still have two podcasts, and I'm very annoying. I'm sorry. Well, so the reason I included it is because. Off and on, I, I was all ready to ask you, like, what happened to it? And yeah. then, like, this week, all of a sudden, there was a new episode after months of silence. Yeah. Well, I mean, what actually happened to it was the election happened. And then I just fell into a pretty deep depression about that because logic. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and then I just kind of just thought for a while I couldn't bring myself to do a theater podcast. Not that they don't matter. I obviously love theater podcasts. I love talking to theater people. But I just wanted to do something with my microphone that had to do with what was going on in the world. And then being back in New York as I'd moved to L.A. made me miss doing a theater podcast. And so who knows how many more I'll do, but I'm here and why not do it? So that, that's kind of what happened. Well, I was glad to see it pop up in my feed this week. Um, so today we're primarily talking about a show that you've written. But before we get into that, because you were an actor first and then came to playwriting, just... Talk a little bit about how that all happened. Well, yeah. I mean, I've always written. I wrote really shitty rhyming poetries all throughout high school. Whenever I go back home, I read them. You know, they rhyme. They say, like, pain and rain and, you know, things like that. Uh, and when I got to New York, I was writing kind of little scenes and stuff like that. And then I took the Labyrinth Theater Master Class. And uh, David Barkatz, who is a pretty amazing playwright and who co-wrote Freak, John Leguizamo's Freak, which is one of the reasons... I wanted to do theater like every goddamn Latino. It's all John Leguizamo's fault that we're all doing plays. Uh, but he said to us in a class, in a writing class, he said, lock yourself in your apartment for a weekend and don't fucking leave until you say end of play, until you write end of play. And so I did that. And that was my first, like, quote unquote, real play. Uh, and now it's great because especially moving to L.A. where you're, you know, in New York, you're always in a reading. You're always acting. You're always exercising that muscle. In L.A., there's a lot more light, like just waiting around. And so it's great for me because now I just write all day. <laughs> so, That's awesome. Yeah. Um, so talk a little bit about this play. So first of all, uh, if you want to give people a little summary, because I feel like you'll do it better justice than I will. Oh, sure. Uh, I'd, I'd love to hear yours too. But uh, David was nice enough to come yesterday. So uh, the play is a satire about U.S. and Mexico. Uh, it's about a man named Jose who shares a piece of land with a guy named Joe that is separated by a little creek. Get it? Get it? And, uh, and they go into business together, and then hopefully tragic hilarity ensues. <laughs> Great. Yeah. Um, so 
where, what motivated this play? Was this something that came at, out of you after the election, during the election, before the election? I, I mean, th- this has been motivated since my birth. Yeah. <laughs> and, and why? Because I was born in Mexico, but I moved to Texas when I was two years old. Mm. So I've always kind of been straddling these two cultures. And, you know, I have a lot of strong feelings about the relationship between U.S. and Mexico. And sort of uh, looking at it from both sides and what does a neighboring country owe to another neighboring country, right? In Mexico, sadly, we are obsessed with the United States. Uh, My family talks about gringos and Americans all day. It is their obsession. They talk about it. We look to them. There's a very famous old Mexican saying that says, uh, you know, poor Mexico, so uh, close to the U.S., but so far away from God. (laughs) Uh, And that is something that I thought about my whole life. And so I always knew I wanted to do a play that was – the first draft of this play, the characters were named Mexico and the U.S. And it was very on the nose, as the play is, and I'm okay with it because of my clowning background. But it is it, – it's hopefully a clown show about what, what, what does a neighbor owe a neighbor, right? Uh, and, and what does that mean and culture and our identities and – how much does identity lose our humanity? You know what I mean? Uh, mm. So it's it's kind of about that stuff. So let's talk a little bit about clowning before we get yeah. into the specifics of this play. Because this is not your first play that that really relies on <laughs> clowning as, as as sort of its its native language. Yeah. Um, so... Wh- what, is it, what does clowning mean to you oh, as, as a playwright as opposed to as an actor? And, and how does that inform the way you write? Well, clowning is my favorite thing in theater. <laughs> like to me, when I watch a Shakespeare show, I'm like, get the sad people off the stage and get the clowns back on. I love them. They are my heroes. And then what really happened was I did theater school for five years. And I had very strong sort of like opinions on what theater was. And then I went and studied Commedia dell'arte in Italy for three months. And in those three months, everything changed for me. Mm. I found theater to be so much more exciting. It was a, kind of a, a space that was allowed you to be present, to improvise, to change, that asked for the audience to participate. Uh, it was much less sort of like, let's out-intellectualize each other and show how smart we are in this theater, you know, which I think theater sometimes is. And I don't like that's good for some people, but not for me. I like... Uh, kind of going to the pure innocence of a human and what makes us all fools. If that, <laughs> I hope that's not too much. But yeah, yeah, I just love it. And I think we should clarify that when we're talking about clowning, this is not like, at least visually, it's not like big shoes, red nose, yeah. fuzzy hair. It's not the It movie. Yeah. Right. <laughs> but at least in this play, by the end, we get real close to that. Yeah. Um, which is, it, as an audience member, it was a really interesting progression because when... There's a you have a, a playwright's note in the program where you talk a lot about clowning and clowns, and so I was sort of expecting when these people first came out, like maybe we'd see some big shoes. Yeah, and and the play starts, if not naturalistic, a lot closer to that. Although the set gives us a little bit of a hint that it's you know not going to be a straightforward totally. like you know normal play. Right? Yeah. How calculated was that in terms of how much how that clowning sort of seeps in and and takes over. Well, it's been a, a, so. I, my collaborator on this, honestly, he should get a co-writing credit. Uh, Lou Moreno, who's the director and the artistic director of Intar, and a great friend. Uh, he and I have been working on this play for three years, and you know, I'm obsessed with clowning, and everything I write has to have something with it. And we, for us, it was super important to figure out how we could go. How how do you create a play where, from the very beginning, you're being told little by little that these are not, this isn't just like two normal people. This isn't just a play about like 
to guys just sort of hinting it slowly along until you get to, you know, spoiler alert, an ending that lets you know for sure that this is a clown play. Yeah. Uh, and I'm interested in that because to me, clown doesn't just mean like big and over the top. Like when people ask me who's my favorite clown of all time, I say Gene Wilder. Hmm. Like to me, the way Gene Wilder acts, Gene Wilder's not acting like how normal. It's not like what Brando did or what Daniel Day-Lewis does. Gene Wilder has these giant eyes and this innocence in his performances that almost could be quote-unquote overacting or something. But to me, that approach excites me. I love Gene Wilder. He's like, you know, when you watch Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, I mean, what that guy is doing is... It's just a whole different thing, you yeah, know? I mean, he's a one of a kind. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, one of my heroes, yeah. So you talk about how, how your director, Lou, was really a close collaborator on this. What did that collaboration look like, and how did that play out? So I'm a part of a theater company called Inviolet Theater, uh, which everybody should follow. It's a really wonderful theater company. And we, every year we go and do a retreat. We go to the Poconos. We all go to this house, and we read. Everybody has to bring a new play, and we just do, like, tons and tons of readings. It's, it's amazing. And so when I wrote the first draft of this, I knew I wanted Lou to direct it. That was my dream for him to be a part of it. So I asked him to come along on the retreat, even though he's not a company member. And from that moment on, he and I started kind of dreaming up what this play could be. Uh, and so honestly, we've workshopped it all over the place. I mean, we were at Two River Theater Company for their Crossing Borders Festival. I was just at the Great Plains Theater Conference in Omaha, Nebraska. There's been readings in Houston and Los Angeles. So... You know, we've just been really developing this and trying to fine-tune this sort of like, what is the the world of this play, right? Because I think it's a very complex and very, uh, it's a tricky balance that we're trying to do, you know? And, and I have to imagine that audiences in Nebraska have a different relationship to the subject than audiences in Houston or L.A. Totally. So what is that? How, how, do, you, how do you strike the right balance when, when you have these, like, vastly different experiences of people coming in. Well, I mean, you know, the, the thing that's always interesting to me about this play is, uh, you know, I did a reading in Houston, and a lot of people who work in the energy field there, and many of my dear loved ones work in energy down there, the play talks about that, uh, they were offended, and they felt like energy is this beautiful thing, and how could you say that what we're doing is polluting the planet? So that's an interesting take there, right? Uh, for me, as a playwright, I just try to write my play and hope that... You know, but I know that in some places people will be offended by certain things, and in other places people will be offended by other things, and, you know, I can live with that. <laughs> it's funny. I kept trying to ask myself during the play if if you were equally fair or equally critical of both of these characters and what they represent. I and think, I ask you, honestly, what you felt about that? I think so. Yeah. I think so. I think that, I think that when it starts out, my... My first impression is like, oh, this is going to be a show where the gringo is the villain. Yes. <laughs> um, and I think at the beginning of the play, it's much easier to feel that. Yeah. And as the play goes on, it really pushes you to question both of these people and what their what their values are and what their yeah. motivations are and if they're being fair to each other or if they're being fair to themselves. And yeah. it really does, by the, by the end, I, I mean... Uh, I thought it got kind of dark, like, cause yeah. by the end, like, it's not like, oh, like, everyone's just trying to do the best thing. It's more like, oh, everyone is just, like, crazy and, like, <laughs> like just doomed. Yeah. <laughs> that, so that, I hate to say, that's exciting for me. Because, you know, again, like, for me, clowning, like, in Lear, that clown's not, you know, like, he's saying things, right, about the world and criticizing and satirizing. I mean, you know, for me, this comes from, I grew up in both places, you know. I would spend every summer in Mexico, and... 
I don't think Mexico is innocent in this entire thing. Mm-hmm. Does that mean we should build a fucking wall and that the U.S. <laughs> no, of course not, right? Like, that, I think that there's this complicated thing that's happened in our sort of Twitter world where everything is black and white, right? So either the U.S. is good or the U.S. is bad because you have 160 characters, right? And to me, it's like, no, like the U.S. has committed so many sins and so much evil throughout the world and has also given us so many beautiful fucking things, right? Like diversity and inclusion, like, you know, as racist as this country is. Come to Mexico, man. You want to see some racism? Like, you know, the U.S. is the one place in the world trying to fight that, and it's a very complicated fight. So I, you know, I look at both sides and I go, I see both both wrongs, right? Do I ultimately side with Mexico? Probably. <laughs> but that, you know, that's uh, that probably has more to do with the home I grew up in. Sure. And whether or not they're the people in the right, you know? Uh, I don't know. I just think it's really complicated. I mean, I also like that in this play... You don't go after the low-hanging fruit, right? It's not about, oh, who has cheap labor and who's crossing a border. It's, yeah. it's really much more, much more complex and nuanced about what are the issues underlying this relationship, um, which I guess as someone who like doesn't live near Mexico, sure. isn't in, in any kind of industry that like deals with these questions, like I really – hadn't hadn't thought at length about you know what are the what are the issues beyond sort of the the headline issues yeah. and and I like that this play kind of forces you past that like even even the wall only gets like sort of a passing mention yeah. and, and like not even like a, like a gesture yeah um, um which is I, I mean also because this isn't a play about right now. This is a play about several hundred years of history and relationship. Yeah. I mean, well, I wrote this play before Trump, right? Yeah. It's really funny. When I wrote this play, it was because I was writing my anti-NAFTA play. Huh. That was part of it, right? Uh, but to me, I don't hate NAFTA because of what Trump hates about NAFTA. <laughs> I, I would like to say, hot take, I don't agree with anything Donald Trump has ever said in his entire life. But, uh, you know, for me, the problem with NAFTA... You know, when I was 12 and NAFTA was signed and I was, you know, doing the thing that all Mexican kids do is reading my Che Guevara and getting really into the Zapatistas, you know, I was mad at NAFTA because it was coming to Mexico and bringing pollution to Mexico. Mm. That was the issue for me. To me, with free trade, I'm all for let's exchange ideas, culture, beauty, love. But if the idea is, oh, you get to put your pollution creating machine in my land so that you don't have to deal with it and you get to make more money, I think that's bullshit, right? Yeah. So, so to me, it's funny. Like when I first wrote this play, it's about NAFTA. And then Donald Trump gets elected. And then all of a sudden, this play becomes way more important to me than I ever thought it could be. But it's, this is not a Trump play, you know? Right. It's a Mexico-US play, yeah. Uh, so thank you for saying that. That's... The development process has continued past the election. Yeah. How, did that, how did that affect the rewriting and the the refining process or or were you careful to sort of keep that at arm's length no i mean you you have to think about it right and and obviously you know my life since the election has become you know this right like the bad hombres comedy thing i swear that's not a plug <laughs> it's just like i'm dedicating myself to satirizing donald trump that's how i fight the fight you know what i mean uh i'm sorry to say this but it, it's in the program but for me my favorite quote of all time is don't get mad get funny it's a gary shandling quote and i love gary shandling are you a gary shandling fan? oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> just like he's such a genius but uh you know so for me that's how i'm handling this right and so 
obviously the idea of Trump and what's happening comes into this play. But for me, it's super important to not take my anger uh, and put it on the page. Mm. Because to me, that's where you lose the fight. There's a saying in Mexico, el que se enoja pierde. The guy who gets mad loses, right? And my mom would always say that to me. She's like, if you're having an argument with someone and you're the one who gets mad, you lose. And so I can't write a play that's my mad Trump play. I have to find, well, what, why do people react to him calling us rapists? Why do people react to these things? What is this sort of cultural thing, right? Uh, and I don't have an answer for that. But, you know, it's something that keeps me up at night. Mm. <laughs> you know, I mean, because he has made a lot of people villains. But one of Donald Trump's villains in his story that he's painted for his base is he's made Mex- – we're one of the bad guys, right? right? And so I, that that idea, I think, is in the play, if that answers your question at all. Sure. Yeah. And, and the funny thing about that is, and again, maybe this is just that I'm arm's length from it. But, like, until he said that, that was not a stereotype of Mexicans I was familiar with. No. Well, it's not. <laughs> right? It's like, not a fucking stereotype. <laughs> <laughs> like, like it, just, it seemed to come out of nowhere. Yeah. Well, I remember, I mean, I remember exactly the day that Donald Trump announced his campaign because my older brother and I, we speak all the time. Shout out to Jose Luis Cubria. And he, he, he and I talk about politics a lot. And he called me and we were like, did you fucking see that speech? And then we were both like, well, it's over now. Thank God he's a joke. And the first day he came out and called Mexicans rapists, like, okay, it's totally done. And here we are, you know? Yeah. It's, it's so fucking insane to me. I mean, it's just like, anyway, th- now we're like talking about that. But it's just, it, right. it just... I can never get over how ridiculous it is. And so my hope is always, okay, get mad, but turn that into like, how can I make fun of how the fuck did we get here? You know, to hopefully shine some kind of truth on it, you know, because it's so, it's insane. It's like, it is a satire we're living in right now, you know? Yeah. So one of the things that I thought was really interesting about this play is that you keep it to two characters on stage, but you definitely had a sense of the extended world that these people live in. There are at least three very important characters who we don't see, but we learn a lot about. Um, And was that like, uh, well, it's easier to get a two character play producers that this is a very symbolic play. And so I want to keep the symbolism clear. How did that happen? Well, for me, it was always, this is a play about these two men. Cause if it was a play about two women, uh, or if we would see the wives, uh, maybe they they wouldn't be such clowns. <laughs> maybe uh, they wouldn't be so foolish. Them. Yeah. Uh, well, and not even that, but you know, I think the problem with what's happening has to do a lot with men. <laughs> sure. <laughs> and our sort of, you know, testosterone and uh, you know things that men, uh, the way we blow up and you know destroy things. It's just. To me, this is a play about these two nations. And so I care very deeply about what are our relationships to our family, what are those things. But it was always just a play about those two guys. I did used to have a, play, a character in the play just for one joke <laughs> who was Canada. And I actually really miss him and I loved it. This is one of these hard things because sometimes in theater where you'll get these notes and they'll be like, well, why is that in the play? And my answer will be because it's funny. And then people will go, yeah, but why? And to me, I've never understood that question because I'm like – Cause funny, period. <laughs> like I love, like I. Not everything needs an answer or logic, right? But eventually, enough people told us to cut Joel. That was mm. the guy's name, and so Lou and I were very sad. But he doesn't exist anymore. Yeah. <laughs> um. So I want to take a, a step, sort of outside of the specifics of this play, and talk a little bit about 
Intar and Inviolate, which are the two theater companies that are is a co production. Is that how you? Yeah. Uh-huh. So first of all, what is what does it mean to have a co production? What does it mean to have these two companies working together? Well, uh, like practically I, speaking, totally. Well, I think it's uh, resources sharing resources. Uh, it's also something that uh, you know, it, it, Lou is incredibly supportive. Lou is a man who wants people in that space, who wants artists, who uh, backs his artists. And he and I, in our friendship, he's become sort of a mentor to us at Inviolate. And we keep trying to figure out ways to do things together because he's a fan of the theater company. I mean, Jerry Rodriguez, who is an amazing actor and great in the show, he uh, is a member of Inviolate and he and Lou go way back. So we've just been trying to do things together. Last year, Lou was nice enough to host my other play, Judgment of Fools, that Inviolate would do late at night there. And so it's just, I think it's about sharing resources, really. Uh, you know, it's expensive to put on fucking plays in New York. Man. It is. <laughs> it's so fucking expensive. What What's your relationship to each of these companies? Like you as an artist. Yeah. Well, so Intar is the home of all Latino theater. I mean, if you're a young Latino artist and you're listening to this, the first move you should do when you get to New York is go to Intar. Uh, you know, my great friends, my great uh, collaborators, uh, my allies in this crazy business, and you need allies in this crazy business, I met all at Intar. Mm. Uh, it is the home of Latino theater in English. It's been around for over 50 years, and it means a great deal to us. As Latino artists, it's our mecca, you know? And uh, just looking at the posters that are hanging up in the lobby, it's like everyone who matters his work there yeah it's it's incredible no every latino artist like john Leguizamo or uh, even friends of mine like raul castillo tanya Siracho, uh, mando alvarado these were all people who started there you yeah. know and we all grew up together and it's funny because the first thing i ever did there was a, sh- a night of short plays that i was one of the producers on it was called one eye in the valley and raul castillo wrote a play and for people who don't know he's like on tv all the time now and he's doing very well tanya Siracho wrote a play she now is show running. She has a show coming up on Stars that everybody should check out. Uh, Mondo Alvarado wrote a play, who is one of the most produced Latino theater uh, writers. Uh, he's also a TV writer now, and he is also my favorite playwright. And then Jerry Reese, who directs all over the country. I mean, it w- it's just a place where you go, and you're young, and you're hungry, and, and it's very special to me. You know, I just love that place. And then what about Inviolet? So Inviolet is the other half of my heart. <laughs> kind of like U.S. and Mexico are my culture. This yeah. is how it's been. Inviolet is a theater company that I joined thanks to a wonderful playwright named Megan Hart. Uh, she invited me into the company. And it is the nicest collection of human beings you will ever be a part of. And that I mean that it's really important because in theater it's hard, man. There's a lot of bitterness. There's a lot of anger. There's a lot of competition. I feel it deeply in my soul, the resentment, the, and it's hard, man. It, it sticks with you. And Inviolet is somehow this wonderful group of people who are super supportive. I mean, all throughout tech, all the Inviolet members are coming and, like, sweeping and cleaning the toilet and, like, you know, emailing all of their friends and asking them to come to the show. Uh, and and that has been so important to me to find, like, just good humans in yeah. this business who also happen to be insanely talented and, like – you know, just wonderful playwrights and actors that I get to grow and hopefully get better with. All right, let's take a step back now, following your model of how you do things on your okay. podcast. <laughs> and like, so you talk a little bit about you born in Mexico, moved to the U.S. at two, mm-hmm. connect the dots from there to today. Well, yeah, I mean, <laughs> I mean briefly. <laughs> no, sure, of course. Uh, well, I will say, I think I'm here uh, for two reasons. One, my grandmother, uh, Fidela, which you'll know that name uh. because of the play. She was a poet, a, a pretty well-known poet in Mexico, a pretty amazing woman. 
and she was kind of a hero of mine. She had like this woman's writers group and in the summers in Mexico, they would all be like, I can picture them in a living room smoking cigarettes and discussing the world, you know? And I just thought, they're so cool. You know, I want to be like that, like an artist, you know? But I didn't understand that as a kid. And then the other reason is my mom. My mom would take me to plays all the time. When I was five years old, I saw Jesus Christ Superstar. And when Jesus was being crucified, I stood up on my chair and yelled and demanded that they stop the crucifixion. (laughs) I was very upset about this. Uh, I got to meet Jesus afterward, which was pretty nice because the cast found it kind of charming. Uh, But yeah, and then, you know, eventually I did theater in high school and all of that and uh, and then college. And so here I am now. Uh, But, you know, theater has always been... You know, I was the kid who, with my cousin, we would write plays for our family in our living room. I just, you know. I so just... it was never really a question for you. It was like, this is what I'm going to be doing. Well, it was a question because, you know, when you grow up in a Mexican home, it's not... My parents are super supportive, but it's just you don't think about being a theater person, mm. you know? So for a long time, I thought, maybe I'll be a, you know, a work at the UN. I, I Honestly, if you'd asked me when I was 15, I thought, oh, for sure I'll work at the UN and I'll, you know, try to, you know save you know i don't know like something like that yeah. right because politics is is a major passion of mine which but, is clear in your heart <laughs> yeah yeah totally but now it's just i you know uh yeah theater my entire life this is how i feel like i just moved to la to do the sellout thing right and uh when we moved to la i declared to my wife on the airplane i said i'm taking a break from theater for two years and my wife was like uh-huh sure <laughs> And now uh, I've written three plays. I joined a theater company in L.A. I produced two shows. I've directed two shows. Mm -hmm. It's like I can't – it's this drug. It's this horrible drug that leaves me poor and bitter (laughs) and desperate, but I love it. It's just my favorite fucking thing in the whole world, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I love it. I love theater. It's the best. So what what have you found in L.A. is the theater situation like? How does it compare? Well, this is what I'll say. It's – it's what I've realized is bad theater is everywhere. <laughs> and, you know, in New York, we look, I, do I think New York is the greatest theater city in the world? Yes, of course I do. But in New York, we think we're so much better than everywhere else. And that's not true. In L.A., you have amazing collection of artists and playwrights because all playwrights quit writing plays and go write for TV because yep. it's the smart thing to do, sadly. So there's this amazing group of people out there doing really great theater. It just doesn't feel the same way. There's like it's almost intangible. You can't talk about it. But in New York, when you're doing a play on Governor's Island that's site specific, somehow you feel like it matters, <laughs> and you're like, "This is the most important site specific Midsummer ever done," right? Yeah. And in LA, it all kind of feels like ah, it's part of our fun night that we're having, but it doesn't feel like this is our lives, you know. Uh, but I, I have found super talented people out there. And the theater company that I joined out there, Ammunition Theater Company, has been a great home because it's a diverse theater company, super talented people, and they're all from New York. So it kind of oh, has nice. that vibe. Yeah. Yeah. Do you think you're in LA for good? Yes. Sadly. Not sadly. I, my hope and is that what this year has been is my life. Yeah. That every year I come back to New York at some point to either do a play that I wrote or act in it. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we're trying to set that up, my wife and I. That was amazing. You're, his, his cat just jumped on the table but fell. That was clowning. See, that well, was that, great that clowning. Was because I stuck my foot out to try to stop her and like mistimed it. Oh, so you tripped her. I thought she just clowned around. Um, uh, but yeah, I think LA is the place. It's just, you know, I, my wife is pregnant. So, oh, spoiler alert. No, but my wife is pregnant. So, you know, I just, I got to make some money, man. Yeah. <laughs> I swear, I, because I, I was saying this last night to some friends. My favorite theater in the world is not Broadway. It's not 
even second stage. Nothing against second stage. But my favorite theater in the world is in a black box with like 50 people seated around you. Well, you've come to the right podcast. <laughs> <I know. laughs> but the problem is if you do that your whole life, you, it's really hard to raise a kid. <laughs> yeah. And so at least for me, some people do it wonderfully and I admire those people a lot. I, I can't. So I sold out and moved to LA. <laughs> Listen, there's nothing wrong with earning a living while you also pursue your dreams. Totally. Yeah, I know. It's so hard. So let's take a, a second just to take a little right turn into the world of podcasting. Because mm-hmm. um, we've mentioned all these different podcast projects you have. Um, but I would love to talk a little more specifically about Bad Ombres and did I do it better that time? Yeah, no, that's great. <laughs> you, you did it right the first time. <laughs> um, and we, you know, how that project sort of bubbled up and yeah. uh the other day i opened spotify and there you were and oh like, really oh yeah wow. I yeah, yeah, yeah. We're, no, we're, yeah oh god i just dropped the microphone <laughs> <laughs> um and and that to you know to me like I, I think you're the first person i know personally who's actually like had their podcast picked up by spotify which feels like a big deal yeah <laughs> so, well, well we got super lucky because uh it's a long, kind of boring story, but so the night of the uh, the election, I started this podcast called "What Can I Do." It was just by myself, and a uh, a company called Revolver Podcasts heard that podcast and then saw the videos we were making with Bad Ombres and said, "Hey, why don't you turn that into the Bad Ombres Comedy Podcast, and we'll support you." And so I will say, as someone who did an independent theater podcast for a long time, having a company that supports you is like, like for example, that like it's on Spotify, yeah. you know. And that in itself is such a help because then people can download it, you know? Like, yeah. I don't know what it's been like for you. What is it? I mean, because it's so hard, the podcast thing, because it really, if it's not your life, it's really hard to make a living doing it, you know? Oh, for sure. Right? I mean, I think this is, I think we're coming up to the close of our fourth year doing wow. Maximo. I might have that wrong. It might be three years, but it's been a long time now. Yeah. And people who've been with us from the beginning, know that it's it's evolved slowly over time. Including we've we've changed up the format a little bit. Yeah. We've become a little bit less like we we used to be every week. Yeah, and now we're definitely twice a month and yeah. sometimes more. Yeah, um, and I think that's just the nature of like when it's not your job. Totally, it's exhausting, and and it's not just exhausting in terms of the the time that it takes to record and to edit. And although oh. that is plenty exhausting, totally. but you know, when we were doing four roundtables a week, and I think Lindsay talked about this on the podcast last week, um, you know, that also means coordinating three or four different people around the table yeah. who all have to see some of the same shows yeah. and coordinating that. Yeah. It's just like, it's a lot. It's a lot for one person to handle, yeah. which is largely what Lindsay was doing. Yeah. It's a lot for five people to handle. Oh so um, I'm actually really excited about this next phase for us where we're diversifying a little bit of what we do so that we can continue to keep this going and have it be regular and also expand a little bit on like, what does it mean? We're doing more of these interviews, yeah. um, which, you know, in the first year, Lindsay used to do some long form interviews, which I, those, I always love those. Those yeah. are my favorites. I love that stuff. Yeah. Um, and so it's nice to hear now there are a few of us who are doing them and it's, that's great. Um, but yeah, it's not, it's, it's a huge commitment. It's so hard, man. I mean, for me, the hardest thing was, well, first of all, theater people are flakes I, and I am, I'm very flaky. Everyone will tell you that. But it's because that's our career, right? Like if we get an audition, like you and I, right. today, we were supposed to meet at 1. And I was like, hey, man, I'm sorry. I got to do it at 10 because I have an audition at 1. You were nice enough to change that, right? Yeah. But when you're doing that every single week, I mean, I got to points where I was just like, how many times can I reschedule my whole life for this podcast? That gives me zero dollars, right. you know? Uh, but I love it. And the the hardest thing was, you know, I'm sure you guys have this too, right? Because this is such a great podcast. 
you go to theater people and they say, thank you so much. Yeah. Like, this podcast means so much to me. I look forward to it every week. And that makes you want to keep going, right? Yeah. Uh, I mean, even this week, coming back with my podcast and having people, all these friends email me and send me messages to be like, thank God, where were you? You're like, oh, man, that means so much to me. But again, I have a kid on the way. Right. And I've made zero dollars on my podcast. So <laughs> I pay for my podcast, yeah. you know? Uh, it's hard, man. It's re- I, I always say to people that if you're going to do a podcast, you kind of have to make it your life. And I think that's also hard for those of us who... Like, I also want to act. I also want to write. You know, if all I cared about was being a podcast host, I think it's more doable. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? I don't know how you feel, but. Yeah, um, for sure. I, I mean, I, you know, I've always been sort of a, a secondary, like a contributor or not, like, you yeah. know, the guy running it. And so it's, for me, God bless Lindsay and for a while, Nicole, like, it, it, other people did the heavy lifting. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I even feel for in writing for myself, like, <laughs> that's. Uh, I have written so much less in the last year um, because there have been other things, you know, that have been pulling my attention that needed my attention. Totally. And, and it's hard. Like I, you know, I, I keep a list of everything I do and I look at it and I'm like, Oh, last year I wrote, you know, like 70 things. And this year I wrote five. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) It's It's really crazy. Yeah. I mean, my wife always says it. It's so obvious, but she's, she's always like, Bernardo, you only have so many hours in one day, you know, like you can't, sign on to 27 projects, you know? And I have to say that since the election, one of the things that I've forced myself to learn is the value of not doing. Yeah. Like, like the value of coming home after a day at work and just like making dinner and watching some TV or playing a video game. Oh my God. It's huge. It's so important. And it's weird that that's a life skill that I'm, you know, I'm going to be 40 at my next birthday. (laughs) And like, it took me until I was 39 to to really get that. Cause especially when, you know, I moved to, I moved to New York when I was 35. And and so I hit the ground and I was like, I need to see a show every night. I need to, you know, make connections with the 800 people that I want to be friends with. And, and, and that was wonderful and exhausting. And and I got some great things out of it, of and it was totally unsustainable. Yeah, and it's it's not so different, you know. Whatever your your passion is, whatever your project yeah. is, like. Well, I mean, I'll say this right now with my wife. I mean, my wife is pregnant; she's five months pregnant, and I'm doing this play. And my mo when I'm in a play or I've written a play is it takes over my life. Yeah, I mean, I cannot think about anything but my play. Like every waking moment of my life is this play, and what are we trying to say, and how can we make it better? Right. I've always been that way. And for my wife, it's been a challenging month. I mean, mm. I, I hope she's okay with me sharing this. She will be. But, you know, because, hey, she's my pregnant wife. And I'm like, when we're out to dinner, she's like talking to me. And she can see my eyes are thinking about like, is that second joke? It's a stupid joke. Why is that joke in the play? I need to cut that joke. Are we going to fix that change? We need to fix that change. What is that? Do people get what I'm trying to say? Like, that's, you know, it's this sort of narcissism of the artist that I think anybody who marries us is a hero to put up with this, you know? Yeah. Uh, and she's like a little bit of a theater expat herself, right? Oh, she is. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So my wife used to uh, – she, she used to produce for the Culture Project, but she was smart enough to see what theater is, and she got out. And now she does documentary film. Uh, uh, so go on Netflix. She has a bunch of great movies. She does amazing Oh, work. name some of them. Oh, please. Another World, which is about uh, Occupy Wall Street, which is amazing. Uh, there's also My Decisions on Netflix that she did. And I don't want to jinx anything, but the movie she's working on right now that, that is coming out next year – I can't even say what it's about. No, that's it's fine. Like a secret, when it comes out, you'll let us when know. When it comes out, I will on Twitter and everything post about it. But she's very talented and I'm, I'm very lucky to have her. Oh, fantastic. I can't wait to go watch it. Yeah. 
So uh, I'm going to end with a question that we may have to edit out because the question that I know is like not the best question to ask theater people, but like, so first of all, um, Neighbors is running through October 7th at Intar Theater. Um, Do you have anything else coming down the pike? Yes, I will ask a code. I'll give a code too to people if they want. Oh yeah, for fifteen dollars tickets, there's a podcast code. You write NAFTA Pod, so NAFTA N A F T A P O D, and you get fifteen dollars tickets to the show. Please come out. If you come during previews, I'll be there, and uh, I'll get you drunk after the play. And if you've never been to Intar, it's right across the street from Ensemble Studio Theater. It's uh, on with Fifty Second and Tenth. Yeah, right by uh, the Fifty Second Street Project as well. Yeah, some great food over there too. Oh, amazing so, like, food. Yeah. Evening <laughs> of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Uh, yeah. Well, so I, I have. You know, the Bad Hombres comedy videos, which we make, uh, we put those out whenever we can. Again, we wanted to make weekly videos. It's almost impossible. But when we also have that podcast, uh, Bad Hombres comedy podcast. And then uh, I have a new play that I wrote that uh, I don't know when our first reading will be, but uh, it's called The Giant Void in My Soul. And it is a clown play. Surprise, surprise. <laughs> but I'm very excited about that play. Uh, and yeah, and that's, that's it right now. Yeah. And if someone is listening to this podcast outside of New York and is like, I want to put on one of these plays. How do they, how would they find the rights to do that? Please. I, I'm on Twitter at Bernardo Cubria. That's where I spend like 20 hours of my day. Uh, I love Twitter. I'm like <laughs> such a Twitter fan. So follow me on there and I can send it out to you. I'm also on the new play exchange. Uh, so, so three of my plays are on there and hopefully soon my agent. <laughs> Wonderful. <laughs> yeah. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for oh my God, David, thank Brooklyn you. and sitting thank down Thank you so much. And... Are you kidding? Thank you, guys. And, and thank you. I just want to say something real quick about Maximo and the people there. You know, when I was doing my theater podcast, there were – in theater, there's this sort of competitive energy, right? Mm-hmm. And people would say to me like, hey, man, do you hear about this Maximo podcast? Like, what do you think about that? And I just want to say never, ever did anyone from Maximo ever make me feel like we were in competition. It has always been like – Let's help each other. Let's cross-promote. And what you started with Folio Group, and I know a lot of people are a part of that. I just want to thank you, man, honestly, because in the theater world, it's all competition. Oh, my God. And we love being part of this yeah, with you. I know, but that really uh, – I just want to say that these are really good people that you listen to every week because really I think that's important, you know, especially in this business. Let's support each other more. Not that I do that enough, but let's try. <laughs> of course you, know? you do. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks for coming by. Thank you, sir. Thank you for joining us for today's episode of the Max Mood Theater and Performance Podcast. If you have questions, comments, or opinions, we'd love to hear from you. You can find us on Twitter. Max Mood is at Max Mood. Bernardo is at Bernardo Cubria. And I'm at It's DeLevy. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a rating and review on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. Also, we have merch. You can buy coffee mugs, tote bags, and stickers with your favorite Maximuisms at our website, Maximu.com. All proceeds go to improving the sound quality of our podcast. Thanks for listening. <laughs>